Welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a WCCM podcast. I'm Elba Rodriguez. In this episode, we'll hear Father Lawrence Freeman speak about maturity as the second milestone in the journey of life. This talk was held at the Meditatio Center in London. Jesus says, I bid you put away anxious thoughts about food and drink to keep you alive and clothes to cover your body. Surely life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow and reap and store in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You are worth more than the birds. Is there any of you who by anxious thoughts can add a foot to his height? And why be anxious about clothes? Consider how the lilies grow in the fields. They do not work, they do not spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his splendor <clears throat> was not attired like one of these. Set your mind on God's kingdom and his justice before everything else, and all the rest will come to you as well. So do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will look after itself. Each day has troubles enough of its own. I realize we're quite a way through these stages of life's, of the milestones of life, uh, without having looked at or, or referred to Shakespeare's famous um, passage about the seven ages of man. It's quite interesting, really, to reflect on this idea of milestones at all. Do we, a milestone suggests a very definite point, a marker uh, in your life or memory where you know that you've, you've passed a certain point, you can measure it. And of course, these phases or ages of life that we all pass through uh, don't really have those markers. There's not a, a moment where we move into uh, maturity or into old age or into adolescence as such. But there may be moments where we're aware of it, where we become aware of a process that has begun to unfold already. And maybe it's uh, those moments where we speak to our friends about those moments or those perceptions. When we say to somebody, you know, I find it a little more difficult to run around the playing field or a little more difficult to get out of bed in the morning or... I, uh, my mind isn't quite as sharp as it used to be. So it's when we actually say something about it to a friend, somebody normally who we would trust, um, that we could say that would be a milestone rather than the process itself. But however we uh, conceptualize it, I think these stages or ages of man are, are pretty um, universal. This is Shakespeare. All the world's a stage, 
and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like a snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, sighing like a furnace, with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honour, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation, even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly, with a good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. There we are. So there is a rather panoramic view of, of the um, <clears throat> strange eventful history of a human life. And yet, somehow or other, although these ages or these stages or milestones are very different from each other and we experience life very differently at each of them, it is the same person in a continu continuum of change. The only certainties in life are change and death, and taxes, as somebody said. But what changes in us? What is it that changes? And is part, uh, and, and is part of this continuum. Somehow we become more aware through this changing. We become aware of how we are changing. We become more self-aware. And as the change increases, as we come closer to that second childishness, we are less able to deny the change. We become more conscious that the time left for change is actually getting shorter. Then we may begin to be aware of something underneath the change, something within the change that is in some sense unchanging or something being born even. What changes must eventually die. But as we die, we can discover that we are becoming more alive. And I'd like to come back to that 
at the end of the uh, at the end of the talk. Um, through the whole process of living, all these seven ages, we find that whether we like it or not, or whether we understand it or not, we are being reconfigured. We are being reshaped. And this is happening not only in us as individuals, in the strange eventful history of one life, but it's actually, of course, happening everywhere, to everyone, not only individually, personally, although that's how we feel it perhaps most intensely, but it's happening around us culturally, religiously. I was in Rome a few days ago, and to walk through Rome is an amazing experience of, of history in the present. Everywhere you go, you see layers upon layers of history, and of course, there's a, there's a, there's a present there too, a living out of daily life and political change and cultural change. So through the whole process of living, we discover that we are being reconfigured, but also that we are part of a great reconfiguring that's taking place in our world. Real reconfigurations of this kind are rare, of course, either in historical or cultural terms. Jesus was the cause of one, and perhaps we would say the greatest reconfiguration that has ever taken place about how we understand what the human being is, what the strange eventful history of one person actually means, how we understand ourselves and our meaning. He revealed a new world and a new world view and we still haven't understood it. Certainly the people of his time and those closest to him clearly didn't understand it. And yet they knew they were being reconfigured. <clears throat> how this changing world, how does this changing world relate to the kingdom of God? Jesus pointed and, in himself, we would say, authenticated the existence of this background or frame of reality. You can call it the kingdom. That was the heart of his teaching, his great symbol of it. And we cannot see or conceptualize this great framework, this great meaning, this great new way of understanding life and reality. Jesus does tell us to see me is to see the Father. But this experience of the kingdom is both new, but it's not new. And he tells us we cannot observe the kingdom. We cannot see it, understand it, conceptualize it or categorize it in our usual way. We cannot say, look, here it is or there it is. So any really radical new reconfiguration of life, of a worldview, will be unintelligible 
when it is first revealed. To those who hear about it for the first time, it will seem mad or dangerous or, as in the case of Jesus, blasphemous. And perhaps you can only be sure that you have told it as it is when you are rejected. It's not going to win you elections. And yet, the aspects of this new reconfiguration of consciousness are joyful, loving, deeply serious, and uncompromising. They give us a new understanding of what makes life worth living, revealing the true values of life. And isn't this what we would hope to have some glimpse of at some point that we might, where we might call ourselves mature or maturing or less immature? Isn't this what we would hope to be able to taste, to see, to understand a little better over time? 2,000 years later, the great reconfiguration of Jesus, we're still trying to understand his understanding of human existence. We've conceptualized it, theologized it, philosophized it, turned it into art, turned it into music. We've reflected on it, commented upon it endlessly. And yet, it still remains something unintelligible. It shows as something luminous, a new way of living, rather than just new ideas or new lifestyles even, but a new insight into the kind of human wholeness that we are destined for, and without which, if we didn't have this new kind of wholeness to believe in or to aspire to or to hope for, life would really be increasingly meaningless. So Jesus and the first Christian teachers understood just how great is the challenge of incorporating this new awareness into our lives and into the life of society or the life of a religion or the life of, a, of any kind of political system or culture. And therefore they saw, and Jesus made it very explicit, the need for a kind of ongoing coaching that we would find it so difficult to remain attuned to this reconfiguration of, 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 of awareness that we would need the Holy Spirit, at least, to keep us on track and to continually remind us. Some new kind of experience of, of teaching and of, of, of coaching, of education, of, of guidance.
So here's one example of this kind of reconfiguration which happens not just at the personal level, but at the, at the uh, 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 cultural historical level in which we are part. And of course, our own personal maturing, our own passing through the stages of life uh, occurs within a historical period and a historical culture. We're very conscious today of the kind of culture we are, we've been born into. And that is being reconfigured all around us all the time, falling apart, and yet at the same time, we hope, reshaping. So this is a long cultural process and the short period of one human life has to come to its own maturity within these bigger cultural uh, processes. In our own lives, the penny drops slowly and brings us towards maturity, we hope, before we slide down the slippery slope towards the end, towards what Shakespeare calls oblivion. So to mature is not just an individual process. Of course, it is an individual is part of a culture, a family. The family is part of a society. The society is part of, of world events. And to mature is a long and complex process. One thing we learn very quickly is that this process involves a cycle of growth that is repeated continually. And that is that we need to lose something if we are to move to the next stage. It's not a choice. We are going to lose it, whether we like it or not. The thing is, how aware are we of that moment, of that milestone, of what it is now, at this stage of our life, we have to let go of, willingly, happily, not bitterly and in, in denial. <clears throat> so before we can enter in, fully into that process of maturity, we have to lose something in order to acquire the skill set and the new ways of perception that are necessary for the next stage. We're always moving on. The ways of perception, the ways of, of interaction, the ways of coping, the ways of understanding in one, in one stage of life uh, don't fit the next stage. It's like, you know, windows being constantly upgraded or new iPhones coming out and you have to use new plugs to recharge them. These ways of perception, if they, have, if they have something in common with each other as we go from one stage to the next, I think we could call them contemplation. We could say that our maturing as human beings is a journey, a growth in the contemplative consciousness. And as we are increasingly aware, certainly in our work in teaching meditation to children, 
contemplation is something that is very present and very much a way of perception for young children. To mature is to become more contemplative. And that means we have to learn to let go of our major dependencies on things like rationality, measuring things, my ego identity, my career, my success, my ways of controlling, my idea of fulfillment, or what I think happiness means. So, to, <clears throat> to move on, to evolve into a more contemplative consciousness, we have to reduce our dependency, our addiction even, is what it becomes because of our kind of education and our kind of conditioning, to these particular habits of mind. It isn't that they are bad in themselves, it's just that we become over-dependent on them, that's why we lose the contemplative quality of consciousness as we become more educated, as we start uh, getting more competitive in our educational system, as we see life as a struggle for achievement and a struggle to achieve happiness. Although I think many people in our uh, very competitive culture, uh, I, I noticed this uh, with some MBA students I was teaching recently, um, when they speak about their understanding of the meaning of life and what they want to do with their lives, uh, very few of them ever said they wanted to be happy. Very few of them even thought that this was something they should actually aim for, at least not until retirement. Maybe they, by that time they'd made enough money to be happy or achieved enough to be happy, to sit back and relax play golf or so but I think uh, I think there are warning signals sometimes crises in our life sometimes particular kinds of losses or breakups of relationships or failures in our career plans which make us really seriously reconsider and reconfigure what are our ways of perception and do we want to actually identify and, and move towards what seems to be the continuity of our lives, the general deep direction of our lives, rather than just the immediate competitiveness and uh, obsession with achievements? Um, a kind of a good, a nice way, I, I think, uh, and not a religious way of particularly of understanding this, uh, this movement of consciousness into the contemplative, which I would say is the meaning of maturity, is uh, the English poet Keats's uh, idea. He was, how old was he when he died? 24, I think. But he's one of the great English poets, romantic poets, and uh, many critics would say the poet who had the closest... Uh, affinity to Shakespeare in terms of his the quality of his uh, imagination and so um, and he died of 
tuberculosis at a very young age. Um, and Keats, uh, one, one day, was looking out of his window, as poets uh, should do, and uh, he saw, a, a, I think it was a blackbird, or a bird anyway, in the garden. And he became so absorbed in watching this little creature that uh, it, uh, it dawned on him, so he became aware of himself being absorbed, but he, it dawned on him uh, that this, this, was a high, this was a level of creative and pure consciousness. And he called it negative capability. It's the ability, he said, I think, to, to remain in situations of doubt or questioning or uncertainty without any irritable searching after fact and reason. Was that it? I think it's fact and reason, he says. So just to, to be there and to be present and to, to be with the bird, if, if that's what you're being with at that moment. Um, it's, uh, it sounds nice, but it doesn't sound very practical. It sounds something you should just do on Sunday afternoons if you've got nothing else to do. Um, but it's pretty much what we do when we meditate, morning and evening. Uh, but it's a, it sounds a little bit uh, useless and indulgent even uh, to our cultural conditioning. Like actually, in, my, uh, in, the, in the last class of uh, my, this MBA class I was giving, uh, I asked them to do a haiku. And I don't think they'd ever written poetry during a business school course before. A haiku is a very short little three-line poem, which is like a, a verbal snapshot of an impression, uh, something they'd seen, felt, smelt, observed, you know? And uh, not a commentary on it, not an opinion about it, not a sermon, but a, actually just a, a capturing of the, of the moment. And so I gave them ten, five minutes or so to write this haiku, and they were brilliant. They discovered they knew their capacity, or they had, I mean, I was even surprised, uh, their capacity to, to capture it, not having had much time to think about it, or they weren't being graded on it or anything. Uh, just to be able to, to realize that, that we have this capacity, this negative capability, this, which is, I think, uh, a meaning of contemplation. One of the great poems of, uh, of, of Keats is the Ode to the Nightingale, which um, school children, I suppose, used to learn by heart. Uh, and it's, not, it's, uh, it's one of the great romantic uh, poems, but it's not quite as, as obvious as it may s have sounded to us when we were children and had to learn it. Um, <clears throat> it's a contra, he's, he's listening to a, a nightingale. It was an early spring, I forget the year, 1819 or something, and he, it was a very early spring, and uh, the nightingales were singing very early that, that year, so he was very struck by it. And um, so the poem is partly about uh, the, uh, our relationship to pleasure, what we might say would be something that preoccupies us earlier in life, uh, pleasures, experiences, 
building up our capacities for enjoyment and, and achievement. So it's something about the relationship between pleasure and death. Because <coughs> not only would he have been aware of his own mortality, but um, of his, his insight into the, into the, um, the, the limited uh, the limitations of, of, a, of, a, of hedonism or of a, a pleasure-based uh, way of life. So it's about, it's, it's something more than about the pursuit of pleasure and more about the fusion of the mind with the actual, with the real, with what is there, what is present, uh, whether that fulfills some previous desire for you or not. But it's, I suppose, a deep uh, fusion with or ex and acceptance of, but more than acceptance, it's about a, an identification, a union with what is there in that uh, part of your life. Pleasures fade, he points out, but Death can be seen as part of life. But more than the typical, what we might think, romantic idea of death here, where death might seem to be an escape from the disappointments of pleasure or the failures of our plans and achievements, um, Death here isn't seen in that rather superficial, romantic way as an escape from the tragedies and pains of life, but it's seen as a process of dying into something. We die into the next stage of our life through the losing and the finding. And with that comes a new way of seeing and being that is more simple more silent and more obedient than the way we were before. Let's give you a little taste of that if you nice to have a break, listen to Keats anyway. Um, so he's been listening to the, to the blackbird, uh, to the uh, nightingale. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs. But in embalmed darkness, guess each sweet, wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming muskrose full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer yews. Of summer eves. Actually, that isn't the one I wanted to read. This is what I wanted to read. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known. <coughs> the weariness, the fever, and the fret. Here where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes the few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale, and spectre thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, 
where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee. So he's already begun to fuse with the sound of the nightingale, despite his leaving behind his, his uh, despair at the fading capacities of pleasure. Already with thee, tender is the night, and happily the queen moon is on her throne, and so on. Clustered round about by all her starry, starry phase, but here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways. So it sounds very sort of typically romantic uh, scene, but what is he saying? He's saying that death is not just the escape or relief or release from the sadnesses of aging or of dying, of, 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 uh, of, of mortality. You know? But it is the dying into a union, a fusion, where there is no light, no way of understanding what it is. And... Uh, <clears throat> No way of, of, uh, of, of, of sort of categorizing it or uh, controlling it. So, I'd like to just, I'd like to end by with two, two examples uh, of this, which I think is examples of, of maturity as a way into a deeper, clearer, simpler, contemplative consciousness way of seeing. One is uh, uh, th that r reading from uh, the Sermon on the Mount that I began with, and uh, Kierkegaard's, Soren Kierkegaard's uh, commentary on it, which I came across uh, quite recently. Um, and then, finally, uh, a more personal example. Um, so when Jesus is saying here uh, uh, to not worry about things, cool, take, it, take it easy, be cool, take care, don't worry about anything, everything's going to be okay, uh, don't be anxious about food and drink, your mortgages, your credit card payments, uh, don't worry about really anything that's going on because... Life is more than all of this. And uh, <clears throat> just look at the birds of the air, the nightingales, and uh, the lilies of the field, the flowers of the field. Look how beautiful they all are. And, uh, and you are... Now, so, so what is the purpose of this? What is he saying? He's saying all of that anxiety all of that drivenness, all of that pursuit of pleasure or achievement or success, all of the things that we identify with earlier stages of life, usually, 
All of these things are for the pagan, that means people who don't know God, to run after, not for you. Although he's speaking to people who, doesn't, who don't know what he's talking about, but he's talking to them as if they knew about it, which is the only way you can get people to listen. So, because your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So set your mind on God's kingdom and everything else and all the rest will come to you as well. So what does Kierkegaard say about this? Well, it might sound like an escape, a, a reversion to childhood, taking refuge in fantasy, irresponsibility, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. Well, that's not very responsible, is it? Um, sounds maybe more like what, what you do when you go to the Costa del Sol for a week on a cheap package holiday or, or to Tuscany for a more expensive one. Uh, so this is, this is how we are when we're on vacation or when we're watching TV or when we're entertaining ourselves in some way or other. But is this maturity? Well, I think this is exactly what we mean by maturity. Where maturity is not understood as achievement or even fruitfulness or having said, well, you know, I now can write my autobiography because I have achieved all these things. But it is clearly a contemplative vision of life, much closer to what Keats is describing. It is a view of the new understanding, of the, new, of the reconfiguration that is made possible only through loss, through disillusionment and despair even. Certainly Kierkegaard would, would say that, that despair could be a very important step into this new way of vision, uh, the dark night, uh, St. John of the Cross uh, talks about, those times of dryness in our meditation, for example. Even despair about our failure to become what we wanted to be. One of the things that maybe makes this transition from one milestone to the other is that uh, from youth to maturity, in youth, you want to be something. You have a certain image of yourself that you would like to realize or to achieve. And then in maturity, you often realize, well, that didn't quite work out that way. Or the things, the aspects of it that didn't work out, uh, you have to learn to let go of. Kierkegaard calls this a frightful realism. Just actually seeing things in the cold light of, of, of day and that there is no escape from them. And he says here, in relation to this teaching of Jesus, that the point of this passage is not that Jesus is saying um, you, you should be like this and you should you know look at the birds of the air and have this negative capability and 
and be free of worry and anxiety, you know, and then things will be much nicer for you. But he's not saying that, Kierkegaard says. He's saying, you shall be like this. This is what you will be like. This is your, this is your destination, your destiny. You shall be like the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, and you will see yourself in, as it were, that negative capability of fusion with them, that oneness with them. Not a choice, but a destiny. And then he says it's only in that uh, condition that we can first, as Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God. Set your mind on God's kingdom, is this translation, I think, isn't it? Set your mind on God's kingdom. So it's first seek the kingdom of God. First seek ye the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. Or set your mind on God's kingdom and his justice before everything else, and all the rest will fall into place, will come to you as well. So it's only if we have entered into this contemplative vision or experience or or type of awareness that we will be able to seek the kingdom of God or set our mind on God's kingdom. Because he says the kingdom can only be sought when it is sought first. And you can only seek it when it is the only thing that you are seeking. So, isn't this what we mean, what we discover in meditation? Setting your mind on God's kingdom, laying aside all other worries and anxieties and desires, pleasures, distractions, a condition of radical simplicity, a childlike state. We see this both as something attractive and also as something frightening because it involves, it seems to us, a reduction, or in other words, a whole other layer of loss, of letting go, of poverty of spirit. Nada, nada, letting go of everything that we might want to hang on to. Kierkegaard says, we get to the beginning by going backwards. One arrives at the beginning backwards. That reminded me of Jesus' saying, unless you become like a, a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or Mother Julian of Norwich. This is a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. So, so this, uh, this mature, contemplative way of seeing and being is one that involves a radical transfiguration or uh, uh, reconfiguration of our minds so that we can then set our mind on God's kingdom before everything else
we can pay attention to one thing. Kierkegaard says that the first step on this backwards journey uh, is the art of becoming silent. I like this image of, of the journey going backwards because it challenges all our ideas about progress. You know, we live in a, a, a culture that because of our technology we, we believe in constant progress. Although in the non-technological sphere we might feel, and looking at the at the news this morning, you might wonder whether we're actually not rapidly uh, regressing. So, is life about progress in any ordinary sense of the word progress? And we soon discover that it isn't. It's not as simple as <coughs> progress or achievement. And this is something that makes sense of the first step on this backwards journey that Kierkegaard says is the art of becoming silent. He says, silence mutes desire. Good way of understanding why we find meditation challenging, why the mind is constantly resisting the art or the work of silence, because we always have something to think about, to plan, to desire. The desires of youth begin to reduce with age. They change. We live in a culture, in a consumer culture, of course, in which desire has to be constantly and artificially re-stimulated. And in order to maintain the highest level of consumption, not in the Keats sense, but in the advertising sense, uh, we have to constantly deny the processes of aging and of death, which only, in fact, delay. They can't, they can't avoid, but they delay the meeting with silence. So the birds of the air are a very good symbol of this silence that we have to meet and the art which we have to learn. However noisy the nightingale may be, or the morning birds, we were talking today how loud the birds sound this, this spring. Uh, however loud they may be, we, I think we, we, can, we can feel and, and experience them as silence because they are natural. That nature never tries to be anything other than it is. The effort to pretend creates distraction and complication, whereas being yourself, which is again what we do, what John Main says we do in meditation, just be yourself, be natural, that is silence itself. It is the work of silence. As Kierkegaard says, the sea is silent even when it rages noisily. Birds are silent, he says, and they learn, they know how to wait. 
even while it sings, it is a profound teacher of simplicity, he says. We find that uh, difficult, I think, to, uh, to see as, to understand, to appreciate, because we ourselves find it difficult to wait and to be silent. And yet if we don't learn to wait and to be silent, the instant that we are expecting will never arrive or we miss it when it does. The fifth hexagram in the I Ching uh, describes this very uh, beautifully. Uh, it's the hexagram that describes patience or waiting. And it's, uh, it's really uh, it's, it's captured by Lao Tzu when he says, do you have the patience to wait until the mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? Can you remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? So waiting is an aspect of maturity we learn, or we are taught, to be more patient by life. And we learn that it's not just about hoping that what we desire will happen, but it's actually coming to an inner certainty that it is happening. And that inner certainty is what illuminates our minds. It's what allows the light of contemplation to change the way we see and act. And if that's true, then the maturity is not about fruitfulness, as we might think, piling up our achievements, measuring how much we've been able to do in the course of our lives, it's not about fruitfulness or accumulation, but it's about the ability to be attuned, to reconcile the active and the contemplative dimensions of ourselves and of life, to come to that one thing necessary that Jesus spoke about to Martha, the overactive person. And even the word, the phrase we often use too much, uh, the present moment, doesn't really capture it either. And then there are the lilies of the field, the birds of the air that teach us silence and, uh, and teach us to wait. But there are also the lilies with a transcendent beauty, also a natural beauty that cannot be possessed that will not last in its present form. That's one of the things that the mature contemplative vision uh, recognizes is the great truth of impermanence. So we can delight in that beauty, 
but we cannot possess it. The result of this maturity, uh, which involves a great deal of loss and a great deal of reconfiguring of our minds, and for us, a great deal of readjustment to the values of our culture and our media and our advertising and everything else, and all the values, the materialistic, superficial, and egotistical values that are embedded in that, uh, in that conditioning, in that culture. For the result of this inevitable process of maturing is joy. Joy, as Kierkegaard says, is the present tense. Joy is always the present tense. And finally, he, he closes this remarkable passage um, by talking about a marvelous trick that allows us to do this. And he says it is expressed in the words of St. Peter, in the first letter of Peter, to cast all your cares upon God. Well, in a sense, too, that is why what we do when we meditate in faith, in the context of faith and fueled by faith, uh, our journey of meditation, you could say, is laying aside those worries and anxieties, coming to that contemplation, that negative capability of seeing the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, and finding joy in them, finding the joy in their presence, even if that presence is subject to change and impermanence, nevertheless, it's still uh, intoxicatingly joyful. So that is what we do. We cast our cares upon God. It's not an escape. Because if we cast our cares in any other direction, we have distracted ourselves. To get rid of your cares without casting them upon this ultimate reality would be a form of distraction. Now, the final uh, example I'd like to give briefly is, um, is a wonderful day I had yesterday with one of our meditators uh, in England who uh, has been uh, diagnosed with myeloma, which is a uh, incurable form of cancer and um, has a limited uh, life expectancy. Well, we all have, but she's very conscious of hers. And uh, she's uh, Anne McDonnell, who you'll, you'll know, some of you will know from the blog, uh, the blogs that she writes on our web, our web page quite regularly. And um, it was a wonderful, wonderful day, wonderful. Um, as she went to, to speak with her and take some photographs, because we're going to publish a little collection of her um, writings, um, Meditatio is going to publish them uh, shortly. And uh, it was a, a day of uh, great grace 
and happiness. And one that great teaching for me. Because what she has come to, I would say, and I hope she's not watching this so she won't be embarrassed, <laughs> uh, is a, uh, you know, through this very process we've been talking about of loss and disappointment and of facing the, uh, the, 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 the brutal reality uh, of her illness, but the same brutal reality we all have to face, uh, she has come to maturity. And she is happy, she's at peace, and I felt that uh, in speaking with her, we weren't, we weren't exchanging opinions or quotations, uh, but she was speaking completely in the present, in the present tense, completely in touch with what she was learning and that she is so grateful for. She is so grateful for what she has learned. And she and this wonderful relationship and loving relationship she has with Mark, her husband, uh, seems to me to be a beautiful, poignant, but very beautiful and joyful uh, expression of this maturity that we are all moving towards. She speaks about it as a new door opening for her. And she says, if one doesn't resist it, there are all sorts of things there to discover. There is a simplicity in life which one can uh, see uh, and which one often does not see because of the busyness of our lives and the many expectations we have of life, the many desires uh, or fears, I suppose, that we, uh, we place between us and reality. And removing these, painful though it may be, is to discover this amazing and delightful simplicity. Remember the passage of, from the Sermon on the Mount, the simplicity of the birds and the natural beauty of the flowers of the field. Well, sitting there in her living room with the garden around her and, um, and which she, with which she is in a very close relationship. And through that door which opens, that door of perception that opens, uh, there's something to receive and to perceive, she says, about being alive and the daily living of this reciprocal relationship with the natural world. And that includes the people that she meets and counsels or comes to see, comes to see her. Not easy to communicate. It's not something that is even communicated. 
but it's part of our daily ability to be healed and to live in a healing relationship with life. So what she's describing is health. And I actually recorded some, some of this conversation to use with some courses we're doing with doctors in Ireland at the moment who are wondering about the meaning of health and the purpose of medicine. Well, here is somebody who is ill physically but has great wisdom to share with, with her medical uh, uh, helpers who are, for whom she's very grateful because they're giving her this extra time to be able to just delight. It's just delight, but it's not, it's not the same kind of delight that we have when we go for, for a distraction, for entertainment, or for pleasure. It's, it's a delight in something, in a way of seeing and in a way of being, that is the unchanging or the ever-new uh, the ever-fresh reality uh, of, of, of existence of God that we call God, ever ancient, ever new. To be happy, therefore, and this surely, if, what's the point in getting as far as the, the, the mature stage of life without having learned a little bit about happiness? To be happy, she says, doesn't involve living in a very complicated way, but in a very simple way. Doesn't depend upon being healthy physically or achieving all the things that we might still want to achieve. But it's about discovering a whole layer of living and being, which is simply about being alive. And for her, as she writes in her blogs, meditation is a central, uh, essential part of this, uh, of this gift, of this process, and of this, uh, what I would say about her, this maturity. And I wouldn't even say spiritual maturity, because that, that kind of uh, pigeonholes it and categorizes it too much. I think it's just human maturity. It's what we are all called to by the very uh, act of creation or the very coming into existence that, that we have all uh, received and, and, and which has propelled us through these ages of man, through these stages, through these milestones. So it's about simply, as John Mayen says about meditation, um, accepting the gift of life, but knowing with every fiber of our being that it is a gift. And then that is what makes us fully alive. You can hear more talks and conversations in the media section on our website, wccm.org, or in your favorite podcast player. 
Thanks for listening. For WCCM, I am Elba Rodriguez.